Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by Pastor John Gardea. Join us as we are pointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone as recorded in God's Holy Word. This sermon is really, the main theme is about the lost and the found. Um, that's the theme of, of Luke chapter 15. Um, so as we start off in this chapter, uh, at the very beginning, uh, we read the parable about the lost sheep. And as you know, a man leaves his 99 sheep and he leaves them out in the op open country. And he does this so he can go find that one lost sheep. And when he finds it, he celebrates with his friends. And then there's the, the parable of the coin. And there's a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one of them. So what she does is she completely cleans her home. And typically those homes were just, it's just one room. So she gets a broom and she sweeps every inch so that she can find that one coin. And when she does, it is a great celebration. Now our parable of the prodigal son is about two sons. And both of those sons, this is a spoiler alert, both of those sons are lost. And the loving father longs for his sons to be found. So let's jump into this, uh, this parable. Um, this parable is commonly re referred to as the prodigal son. Um, but unfortunately, there are many pastors who will just focus on the message of the prodigal son. And that's a huge mistake because this story, it's about the, 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 a message of not only the prodigal son, but it's also about the father and also about the eldest son. So today and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the character of the youngest son, the father, and the eldest son. And each of these um, characters in this parable represents someone. So the father, of course, in this story represents God the Father. The youngest son in this parable uh, is a picture of the tax collector and the prostitute. And the eldest son represents the self-righteous religious person who sins in their heart. And this is the Pharisee. Now, Jesus is telling this parable, he has a reason. So it's focusing on two types of sinners. So these are the sinners who are present in, in the audience. And so we need to consider exactly who Jesus is talking to when he does tell this story. So who is the audience? So first of all, we have the tax collector. So tax collectors, with their job, what they did is they collected the money from the people, right? Um, and they would, uh, they would do this uh, for the government. And any money that they collected above and beyond the taxes, they could keep for themselves. So many times they would collect beyond the required amount. And so that infuriated the people. So that's why people didn't really care for the tax collectors too much. Um, needless to say, a tax collector was a thief. Then there was a prostitute. And as you know, the prostitute is sexually immoral, the outright sinner, and the scribes and the Pharisees would have considered these women to be detestable. And then, of course, we have our scribes and the Pharisees in the audience. And they are, outward, outwardly, they appear to be as righteous, but inwardly, inwardly their heart is filled with sin, uncleanliness, Jesus even said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So quite, quite stunning. So 
Um, so now that we have the background of, of the characters, let's jump into it. So starting off in Luke, um, uh, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 11 and 12. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me my share of the state that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. So first of all, I want you to note that there are two sons. That's very important because this story is not just about the prodigal son. It's also about the eldest son and, of course, the character of the father. So let's start off by examining the character of the, of the youngest son. So you can tell right off the bat he's rebellious, he's impatient, and he says to his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. What he's really saying to his father, I want you dead so that I can have my inheritance now. Now inheritance is never given out until the father dies. The younger son, he's impatient. He doesn't want to wait for that. He doesn't want to wait for his father's death. He even wishes him to be dead. So he boldly tells his father, give me my share of the state that belongs to me. You know, people tend to be deceived by the sinfulness of their hearts. Believing that there's always something out there that's better than what we already have. So for instance, if I had a sports car, I might think, now that I have this nice sports car, the women are going to look at me. Is that true? Maybe. Um, if I had money, life would be better. Would it? I don't know. So many people who win the lottery are sorry that they win. If I only had this new house, life would be more comfortable. I don't know. Will it? I know that in the walls of a house, there's all kinds of trials and tribulations that happen. So the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. The human heart yearns to possess stuff. So I want you to understand how the father feels at the request of his young son. And for those of you who are parents, I want you to imagine this, okay? Imagine that one of your sons or daughters comes up to you and says, I want my inheritance now. How would you react? How would you react to that kind of request? It's outrageous, isn't it? You know, I, I could tell you, I would react with a harsh rebuke. So amazingly, in this, in this story here, the father agrees to his youngest son, and he gives him his share of the inheritance. So what does this say about the character of the father? The Pharisees no doubt would say, the father's foolish. Because the youngest son commits a shameful, shameful act by wishing his father dead so that he could have his money. The thoughts and the wishes of the son, they're downright evil. He doesn't even hide his sin, and he openly dishonors his father. What the son is saying is, your money is more important to me than you are, father. I don't want to wait till you die. I want my share. So the father gives him the share of his estate, gives in to his request. Is there wisdom in the father's action? Well, let's continue on. Verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all together. He, he gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. So as we said, the prodigal son, he's impatient. He's greedy. He's quick to cut ties with his father. The rebellious son, he doesn't want to be held accountable. The relationship with his father means nothing to him. 
Now that he has the money in his hand, he has a plan. So he gathers up everything and he leaves where? To a distant land. Why doesn't he move just to the next town over? Because he wants to be autonomous. He wants to do his own thing. The young son doesn't, he doesn't want his father to tell him what to do. He doesn't want to be in the presence of his father. He wants to do, he doesn't, he doesn't want to do the work of the father. He doesn't care about the father. He doesn't want anyone questioning his actions. The, so the youngest son plans on living a life of sin. So his plan really is to, to feed the desires of his flesh. So what are the desires of the flesh? So if we take a look at Galatians 5.19, and you can just follow me. Um, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Then the scripture gives us a stern warning in the very next verse, which it says, Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this warning is sobering. It's very sobering because I look at this list, this list, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of sinning against heaven and against my father. And the young plan, the, 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 the plan of the young son is to dive into this list of sins that we have just read. And he's going to dive in head first. The whole scene is a picture of what, son, what, what sin does to our relationship with the Lord. Isaiah 59.2 But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. So let's go back to the Father and ask this question. Why did the Father give his son the inheritance that allows him to go and sin freely. Why? That's actually a, a very difficult question. But I want you to hear this. The father let his son go completely to have him back completely. Okay, listen to that again. The father let his son go completely to have him back completely. Wow. <laughs> when I think about the response of the father, I get brain freeze. I really do. Because would I respond in the same way as a parent? Honestly? No, I wouldn't. But I am far from being the perfect father. And my daughters can, can be witness to that. And if you are a parent, you know how hard it is to raise a child. Every single day, you have to make decisions concerning your children. And as parents, we're always trying to protect our children, even when they grow up, right? My mom still tries to protect me. Oh, how I love my two beautiful girls. I can't even begin to explain what they mean, how much I love them. I love them so dearly. And my greatest desire for my girls is that they have true saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That daily... They, they cherish the relationship with the Holy Father in heaven and that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That is my greatest hope for them. Especially in the world that we live in today. We are surrounded, we're swimming in an ocean of sin. 
this world, what has become of it? You know, the world can be so enticing. There's so many things out there that can cause us to sin. It's so easy. And our children are out there. And I know that as Christian parents, your desire is to protect your children. And when your teenage child makes up their mind, can you talk them, to them about the error that they're making? Can you make any sense to them? And really, at any age, so I'm, I don't want to just pick on the children, at any age, even as adults, right? When you focus on the desires of your flesh, and when those desires are foremost in your heart, you are blind to the truth. You don't want to know the truth, and you don't want to be told what's right. And I'm saying this because I'm just as guilty. We all need to do surgery on our hearts. We all need to identify the sin that is rooted in our hearts. And to the children and to the young adults that are listening this morning, I tell you, honor your mother and father. There's a point. There's a point here in this sermon. How great is our Father in heaven? We should honor him. He is a good and a great God. And he loves us. We need to be held accountable. Why? Why do we need to be held accountable? First of all, it's a reminder that we are not alone. It keeps us in line when we know we're being watched. And it helps us to expose our sin, especially when we're blind to it. And that's why it's so important as a church that we love one another. And this may be the hardest thing to do, but if you find your brother in sin, you have to rebuke him. And it may not be very comfortable, but if you love your brother, that's what you're going to do. If you love your sister, that's what you're going to do. So obviously, the desires of the flesh are foremost in the prodigal son's heart. He doesn't want any accountability. So what does he do? He moves to a distant land. The rebellious son indulged his time and money on the pleasures of the world. And 1 John Chapter 2, starting in verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things, of the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the young son, he clearly has a desire to do the things of the world. And the love of the father, it's not in him. He abandoned his father and he wasted his money on loose living. He's sexually immoral, impure, indulging in, senso, in sensuality, idolatry, and perhaps he's even partaking in orgies with prostitutes. He feeds the desires of his flesh without any restraints, sinning freely, and there's no one around to see. And this describes the way of the world, even today. People want to feel good and and sin can provide that temporary pleasure. So the rebellious Christian, okay, Christian in name only, they tend toward the area of worldliness. The ways of the world are desirable to the flesh. And that's because sin does provide temporary pleasure. All right, so you think about it. You steal a candy bar. You eat the candy bar. While you're eating it, you have the pleasure of eating the candy bar. Something a little more serious. If you have an illicit affair, 
there's, there's pleasure in that sexual um, encounter. If you have a prideful heart, you get the, ple the pleasure of placing yourself up on the pedestal above everyone else. So there is temporary pleasure in sin. But putting the pleasure of sin in the foremost, uh, the foremost of your heart, what it does is it creates an idol. And idolatry separates us from the Lord. When fleshly desires rule, they take priority over God's will. And it causes us to violate God's righteousness. Idolatry disregards God's authority. Sin is an offense to our Father in heaven. Without the righteousness of the Lord, we are hopelessly lost. So the prodigal sin, he's truly, truly lost in his sin. He's cherished the idols of his heart and he's put them before all, even before his Father. And even though he is feeding the desires of his flesh, these sins, they never satisfy him. And as a result of his loose lifestyle, he squanders all of his inheritance, leaving him completely broke. He has nothing left but the clothes on his back. And isn't it funny how things happen? Because just then, the trials and the tribulations kick into full gear. Luke chapter 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So the young son is beginning to experience the consequence of his sinfulness. And sin has a price to pay. Sin always has a consequence. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Those who plow iniquity and those who sow tr uh, trouble, they harvest it. Troubling, troubling times have come for this young prodigal son. A famine has hit the land and he's run out of money. He's living, and think about this, he's living in a distant land with nobody who cares for him. And at this point, he has to be questioning himself. What should I do? What should I do? Can you imagine living in another country? Maybe somewhere in the Middle East. Maybe in Australia. With no money, no food, no loved ones, no friends, nobody to turn to. What would you do? But the prodigal son, his heart is still hard. He's not ready yet, right? He's not ready to return to his father. So he takes matters into his own hands. So what does he do? I'll get a job. What wisdom does this young man have, right? He just had all kinds of money in his pocket and he squandered it. What makes him think that a job is going to save him? Will the meager earnings from this job dig him out of the hole that he's dug for himself? Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. So this prodigal son, he persuades a farmer to hire him. Right? And the farmer sent him out into the fields. Go feed my pigs. And this is completely degrading in the eyes of the Jewish people. Pigs in the Jewish culture, they're considered to be the worst kind of filth and uncleanliness. This is the lowest possible job you could have in the eyes of a Jewish person. It would be the equivalent of you and I having a job working in a sewer. So now that this young man begins to work, he labors day, day in and day out. 
It's the worst kind of job imaginable. And despite doing everything he can to make things better, nothing works. He can't earn enough money to survive. He can't get ahead. He's hungry. Being hired by this farmer, it doesn't improve his situation. Not a single bit. So how desperate is this young man's situation? Right? Broke, alone, hungry, separated from everything except for the pigs. Verse 16. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. So the young man, he became hungry. And the pods that he was feeding the pigs, even they look good to him. Can you imagine looking at pig slop and thinking, mmm, that looks good. <laughs> but the only reason why he didn't dive in head first along with the pigs is because carob pods are not digestible for humans. So for this reason, he can't eat the pods. The very pigs that he was caring for had more to eat than he did. The pigs were being cared for better than he was. So the last part of this verse makes the young man's situation completely apparent. So even though the young man is starving, what does it say? No one gave him anything. No help, no relief. And, you know, it might have been because everyone was going through a famine and they didn't have anything to give. That was a possibility. And then my brother Doug brought up an interesting point that I thought could be a possibility as well. Maybe it was because this young man was so sinful, so evil, that nobody wanted to help him. That's a possibility too. So these are hard, hard times and as we know, sin has consequences, and sooner or later, sin will affect our life. There's a price to pay for sin. And the prodigal son cannot even make a living by begging. Either people like, can't afford to help them, or they just don't want to. No friends, no family, no food. Broke living in a distant country, completely separated and alone. His situation is absolutely desperate. He's helpless. He's in despair. He's at the bottom of the barrel of life. But you know, it's times like this that cause us to examine ourselves. Desperate times can cause us to do spiritual surgery on our hearts. And this young man starts to consider the sinfulness of his heart. He starts to think about how he's offended his father. Verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. So at this point, the son being utterly bankrupt and hungry, nothing left, being desperate, examines his heart. And the truth of the matter, that living in sin, it is a desperate state. And for me and you as well, the son must have been thinking, I can hear the echoes of the young man's heart. What have I done? I've been so selfish. I've been so greedy. I've been living horribly. All this loose living. I've been sexually immoral. I've deeply offended my father who has always been so good to me. What hope do I have? Where can salvation be found? Can you hear the desperate cry of the prodigal son? 
So he realizes that his father is a good man. He's a loving man and he's generous. Most importantly, the son realizes that he has sinned against heaven and against his father. Realizing his desperate position, he has insulted and honored what is most important to him, which is his loving father. A complete change takes place in his heart. He no, longer, he no longer desires the sins of the flesh. He even hates the sins that he has committed because the love of the Father becomes foremost in his heart. He no longer wants to be in this distant land separated from his Father. He wants to be with his Father. And this young man, he turns away from the life of sins and he starts his journey back to the Father. This is a picture of repentance. This is exactly what the Lord wants from you and from me. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So the son comes up with this plan to return home. And he carefully contemplates what he's going to say to his father. And I can only imagine how the, the, how the son would rehearse these words that he would say to his father when he got home. So Luke, um, uh, verse 18 and 19 of this chapter. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So can you imagine this young man as he's thinking about what he's going to say and how he's trying to rehearse what he's going to say? He's thinking, all right, this is what I'm going to say to my father. Um, I've sinned against you. Wait, 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 no. I, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. Wait, wait. No. I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Yes, I like that. Yes, that's what I'll say to my dad. And then I'll say, make me as one of your hired men. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he begins his journey home. On the journey home, surely this man is having all kinds of thoughts, racing through his head about his father. How is his father going to act at his return? So in his mind, he's playing out all of these scenarios. Have you ever... Uh, had some type of problem in the middle of the night and it's just on your mind and you can't go to sleep and you keep thinking about it and thinking about it and playing out all the possible scenarios that may happen. Has that happened to you? Hasn't happened to me, but anyway. <laughs> so, he's playing out this, this scenario in his mind and he's walking on the road and he starts to count the cost of the sin that he's committed against his father. Would his father shun him? Would he make him one of his hired men? Would he make him pay back all that he has squandered away? Will my father have mercy on me? Now, if you were this young man, surely you would think, how can the Father possibly forgive me, especially for the grievous sins that I have committed against him? I'm a wretch, and I'm in such grief because I've hurt my father. But the prodigal son decides, no matter what the cost, I will offer myself to my father. And perhaps today, you are like the prodigal son and you're struggling with sin in your heart, in a distant place, far away from the Lord, lost and alone. 
asking, what hope do I have? But I want you to remember the character of our Father in heaven. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what the Father wants. And we all fall short of the glory of God. We are all the prodigal son, every single one of us. And the truth is, none of us deserve forgiveness. We deserve to be punished for the sins that we have committed. And it's an absolute offense to sin against the Lord. And the price for committing sin, as you know, is death forever separated from the Lord, thrown into the fiery furnace in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because if you don't repent and turn to the Lord, that is your future destination. And that's a hard truth to swallow, but it's the truth. The ultimate price to be paid for sin is eternal death. But as for the prodigal son, he didn't deserve forgiveness either. The father had every right to punish his son. The, pro the prodigal son should have to work for the rest of his life to pay off the debt that he has incurred. But consider the love that the father has. But God is full of mercy. He's full of grace. Just how much does God love us? He demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. God the Father desires for you to come to the foot of the cross and to submit to his precious Son as Lord and Savior. And the prodigal son in this parable, he's a picture of salvation. He repents of his sin and he comes to his father. He completely submits to the authority of the father. He has absolutely nothing to offer his father. He's broke. He's bankrupt. He spent everything. The only thing that he has to offer is himself. So what's so amazing about the father is that he forgives his son without any kind of rebuke. As you read the scriptures, do you see any rebuke from the father? No. So how does the father respond? So let's take a look at the character of the father. Verse 20. So he got up and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. The father loved his son so much. And you can just picture this scene, right? On a day-to-day -day basis, the father would go to the highest point of the estate and he would look for the son. You could just see him. He's looking and he's looking. And day after day might have turned into year after year. And the father longs for the return of his son. And maybe there would be, even be some days where he would see a silhouette. Is that, is that my son? Is, is my son coming? It's just Fred from the next town over. You know, there had to have been days of, of disappointment. But there's one day that comes where he looks out and he sees his son and he's overjoyed. You know, and I just, I love the way John MacArthur has explained this scene. Um, if you ever, ever have a chance, please listen to his series on the prodigal son. It's, it's, it's just wonderful. Um, so I did borrow some of his material from this. Um, so what does the father do? Why, the, the, the way they were dressed is that the father is, is wearing this long robe. So imagine what it would be like to run in a rope. 
in a robe. Could you? No. So he hikes it, he hikes it up, pulls up his robe, exposes his legs, and runs to his son. Now the Pharisees listening to the story at this point would have seen the father's actions as absolutely shameful. Why? Because this father, he's a nobleman, right? And noblemen, first of all, they don't run. They don't expose their legs, right? Because a nobleman, he must have dignity. He must be honorable. And there's no honor or dignity in an elder man sprinting across the town. Or at least in the eyes of the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees are thinking. But without a thought, right? The father doesn't even think about it. He's willing to bring the shame upon himself. He loves his son and he's so overjoyed with his return. And the father wants to protect his son, right? Because his son's coming back into town. How do you think the townspeople are going to treat the son? Probably not very yet. well. They're probably going to be rebuking at him and hurling all kinds of insults at, at him. And that's not what the father wants. He doesn't want the people to rebuke his son. So he draws the attention to himself and he bears the shame and the abuse so that his son won't have to. This is a picture of what Christ did for us. In the same way, Christ bared the shame for our sins on the cross. Christ is innocent. He lives a perfect life without ever committing a sin. Yet, he's willing to be treated like a criminal so that we don't have to. So the son comes before the father, once again completely broke, not a penny to his name, although that's not the currency of the time. He's dressed in dirty rags and he smells like a pig. Right? How does the father react? Does he... Oof. No, that's not what the father does. The father has compassion for his son. He embraces him and he kisses him. Despite the muck that's all over. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So remember that the son has most likely rehearsed his lines. Now I want you to take note here. This is important. Did the son ever finish his rehearsed line? Remember in verse uh, 18 and 19, that's the whole rehearsal part. Um, so the son never gets a chance to say the last part. Make me as one of your hired men. He never finishes these lines because the father interrupts him with all these hugs and kisses. He's completely forgiven because the father is filled with love and compassion. And what's, what's amazing, like I said just a minute ago, the father never rebukes his son. Verse 22, but the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. At the very first sign of repentance, the father is eager to forgive his son. The Lord is slow to anger and swift to forgive. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but his delight is to save sinners like the prodigal son. Sinners like you and me. And we can rejoice and be thankful that we have such a loving father. See how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And if you are wondering today if God the Father can possibly love you, know this, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep. You were lost. 
but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That's how much the Lord loves you. And the father completely restores his son. He clothes his son with a robe and he puts a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And each, each gift that the father gives to the son is significant. The robe was reserved for the guest of honor. So this dem demonstrated that the position of honor, that the son had the position of honor in his father's house. The ring was a symbol of authority. So it means that the son had the legal right to use the father's property and assets freely as if they were his own possession. The shoes were not hot, they were not worn by the hired men or by the slaves. The shoes were only for masters and for their sons. They were the only ones who had shoes. So this is complete, full restoration to sonship completely forgiven of his transgressions. No rebuke, no punishment, completely forgiven. What has been lost has been found. Now, it's time for a celebration. Right? Because we've read about celebrations. What did the, what did the shepherd do when he found his sheep? He celebrated. What did the old woman do when she found her, cone, her coin? She celebrated. Now the lost son has been found. So it's time for a celebration. However, we're not going to get into it until next week. So that's part two. All right, so if you want to hear part two, you've got to come next week. All right, but remember, when you walk away today, I want you to remember that this story is not just about the prodigal son. Okay, if this sermon were to finish at this point, you would miss out on half of the lesson. So in closing today, I want you to consider the lesson of the prodigal son. The lesson is that sin is an offense to the Lord. To live in the lust of the flesh is a rebellion against the Lord. Living in sin is to deny the law of God, to deny the will of God, to deny the authority of God, and ultimately, it denies God as our Father. Choosing sin rather than God is the same as wishing that God was dead so that we could live our life the way we please. Autonomous, distant from the Lord. No responsibility, no accountability to God. But even if you have lived a life like the prodigal son, and, and I know that we're all guilty of these sins. I just read the list, and I know we're all guilty. But I want you to understand that the mercy seat remains available to all who come to him. Know this. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Isn't that good news it's wonderful our God is a good and a loving father God has given to us abundantly you think about what has God given you think about that this morning all the provisions that you have the food that's put on the table the house that you live in the car that you drive the Lord has provided these provisions for you He's given us life on this earth. He's given you the air that goes into your lungs, the blood that pulses through your veins. He's given you your life. He's given us his word. 
the good news of the gospel. He's given us the Bible. But above all else, he has given us his precious son who died on the cross to pay for our sins. And feeding the desires of the flesh living in sin is to take all these gifts that God gave to you and to squander them. To waste your God-given gifts and self-indulgence and, and to live in loose living is to dishonor God the Father. So I, if I tell you, if this is you, examine your heart. Just like the prodigal son did. Search your heart. Even if you have to do that surgery on your heart and it hurts, turn from your sinful ways and go back to the Father. And you might want to know, does the Lord want me to return? These thoughts may be going in, around in your head. But I want you to note this, that because God has given all believers a command to share the gospel with those who are lost so that they might be found. Because of this, you can know that God wants you to come back. And Jesus said, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday at 9 a.m. for connections and at 10.30 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the Baptist Student Ministry at 101 East University near UTEP. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-308-1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.